From Brennan to the Boca Chill, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Sawduck to lovely Duckabush. From Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, the climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for episode 63, The Deadliest Bridge Collapse in the Evergreen State. Before I get into today's episode, I just wanted to throw in a little disclaimer. You may have noticed by now that my voice is sounding rough, so please accept my apologies. I went to the Mariners game last Friday where we clinched our first playoff spot in over two decades. The last time that happened, I was in the first grade and not even seven years old. I'm not going to lie, when Cal Raleigh hit that walk-off home run, I cried tears of pure joy and also hugged numerous strangers and screamed my head off for a solid hour so you can say that I left my voice back at the ballpark. Some of my earliest memories are playing in the backyard and my grandpa would have the Mariners game on the radio. I've been a fan my whole life, and I've watched numerous games, so to be there when the drought ended is well worth losing my voice for half a week. I've gotta say, I was at the NFC Championship game where the Seahawks beat the Niners to clench our spot at the Super Bowl, and honestly, this was much sweeter. It's gotta be up there with the double in terms of Seattle sports history, in my opinion, and I got to be there in person to witness it. Anyways, that's enough about that. Let's get to why you are all listening today. Nearly a hundred years ago, on the evening of Wednesday, January 3rd, 1923, a massive traffic jam occurred on the Allen Street Bridge, which was the third such bridge to span the Cowlitz River and connected the new upstart town of Longview to Kelso on the other side of the river. The Allen Street Bridge was built in 1906 entirely of wood and had been weakened recently due to recent flooding and overuse as the two communities continued to grow following the arrival of the Long Bell Lumber Mill and the end of the Great War just a few years prior. The large traffic jam that resulted that cold January evening was from a stalled vehicle on one end of the bridge while a team of horses on the other side slowed everything down to a crawl. When all of this stress was placed on the old wooden bridge, suspension cables started breaking and the support towers toppled down, bringing down the rest of the bridge with it, crashing into the cold depths of the swollen Cowlitz River. Numerous people making their way by foot across the bridge heard the ominous noises and knew that disaster was imminent. They managed to just get off the bridge before it collapsed. The people who weren't so lucky were either plucked from the wreckage over the next couple of hours or drowned stuck in their vehicles. The exact number of people killed in this event is impossible to know for sure given that many itinerant workers were employed in the area and there was no accurate way to truly know who was on the bridge that day, but what is known is that about 20 bodies were recovered, making this event the deadliest bridge collapse ever to happen in the Evergreen State. Just two years prior, the Long Bell Lumber Company of Kansas City, Missouri purchased over 11,000 acres of Flat Valley land that was ideally located between the Cowlitz River and the mighty Columbia. The company had grand ideas of building two massive lumber mills in addition to full-on planning and building the entire town around it to house their workers and support their mills. Usually towns in the Pacific Northwest started with the lumber mill and the rest of the settlement tended to grow up around that, but this is not what Robert Alexander Long had in mind for this settlement. Kelso at the time had fewer than 2,000 residents and was first claimed back in 1847 by a surveyor who was born in Kelso, Scotland, though he wouldn't begin to develop this claim until the mid-1880s when he divided the land into 500 lots and sold them. 
The town of Kelso would be incorporated in 1890, and in 1922, the town of Kelso replaced Kalama to the southeast as the seat of Cowlitz County. As the big mills in Longview were being built, it became clear that several thousand laborers would be needed to efficiently operate the mills, and during the two years of construction it took to build the mills and the town around them, Kelso was inundated with transient and temp workers helping to build the planned city across the river. All of these new people and the increased traffic put a strain on the little amount of infrastructure that the small town had at the time. At the time, the Allen Street Bridge was the only way to cross the Cowlitz, and every day it continued to carry an ever-growing number of workers to and from the Long Bell building site. The Allen Street Bridge was known to locals as the Kelso or Cowlitz Bridge and was originally built to connect the two small towns of Kelso and Catlin, which is now called West Kelso. It was a narrow, 600-foot-long, two-lane bascule-type drawbridge that used huge counterbalance weights that were located in overhead towers. These would assist the machinery in pivoting the bridge deck upwards, which then opened a passageway. Two piers with sunken pilings provided the foundations for the bridge. This bridge had actually been built to replace one that had previously been destroyed in a flood in 1906. Though the bridge had been renovated in 1915, that renovation simply saw the placing of new timber boards over the rotten ones of the bridge, effectively doubling the weight of the span and causing far more problems than it ever solved. By 1920, the shape of the bridge worried many, and there were actually quite a few Kelsonians who refused to use the old bridge at all. To meet the needs of the growing number of commuters, the State Highway Department, in conjunction with Cowlitz County and the city of Kelso, started building a new replacement bridge over the river in early 1922. This was close to the old bridge and just downriver from it. The new Allen Street Bridge was built of sturdy steel and cement by the Pacific Bridge Company and had a vertical lift span capable of carrying four lanes of traffic. Ironically, the new bridge was nearly completed by the time the old one collapsed and recovery efforts were performed from the bridge. This new span opened nearly two months after the deadly collapse on the morning of the 19th of March 1923. Since record-keeping began back in 1895, 1922 was one of the driest years in the Evergreen State, with annual rainfall being 9 inches below normal. This weather pattern quickly changed, dramatically so, in December, and by the end of the month, over one-third of the total rainfall for the year had fallen. The rivers across the state and in Oregon were swollen, with most running at or above flood stage level. Most of these swollen rivers were also full of debris and logs, and the Cowlitz was no different. This accumulation of debris in the river at the supports of the bridge had to be removed by barge cranes or by simply dynamiting it away, otherwise tons of pressure would build up and continue to weaken the bridge. New Year's Eve of 1922 in the Evergreen State saw a big storm hit, with the weather station out at Tatouche Island recording an incredibly low barometric reading of just 29.02 inches, and the weather station at North Head near the mouth of the mighty Columbia recorded gale-force winds blowing up from the south at 76 miles an hour. Seattle ended up receiving well over an inch of rain during the deluge. The first couple of days of the new year saw more storms continue to pound the Pacific Northwest, bringing torrential rain and continuing to flood out the rivers. Even by the P&W standards, this was extraordinarily wet and meant that the Cowlitz River was over 15 feet above normal and was beginning to near flood stage. That Wednesday, the 3rd of January, 1923, found a larger-than-normal rush of traffic waiting to cross the Allen Street Bridge. I mentioned earlier how there were horse-drawn wagons on one end stalling traffic while on the other side a stalled car blocked traffic. 
But to back everything up even more that fateful evening was the fact that the drawbridge had just lowered. Let me tell you, I've worked in Fremont for the last decade. I know it's no comparison to Kelso and Catlin, but when the Fremont Bridge goes up during rush hour, it makes a complete clusterfuck of the entire neighborhood for a solid 10 to 20 minutes. Now, just throw in a stalled vehicle and slow-moving horse teams, and traffic must have absolutely been stopped. Making his way across the bridge that day was the recently elected Cowlitz County Commissioner Benjamin Barr, who was sitting in the back of his car while being driven by his driver, Arlie Millard, who felt a sharp jolt 11 minutes after 5 p.m. This was the upstream steel support cable at the east anchorage of the old bridge tearing loose. This ran through the pulley at the top of the east tower, and when the cable snapped, it released tension on one side of the bridge, thereby resulting in the toppling of the two supporting towers. All the people in their cars sitting in the middle span of the bridge were trapped while the bridge collapsed into the cold waters of the Cowlitz. The middle span was approximately 300 feet in length, and it turned over as the western tower slowly toppled. This spilled trucks and automobiles in the fast-moving and very muddy river that was 20 feet below. There were quite a few pedestrians that did not make it to safety, and when the draw span dropped like a trapdoor, they were quickly dumped into the river. The east tower ended up collapsing onto the new bridge that was still under construction and then broke apart, but the east approach to the bridge was left standing. The bridge collapse also broke water mains and telephone lines that ran out to West Kelso. These broken phone lines then fell across high-voltage power lines causing transformers to short out of Kelso, plunging the town into near darkness since January in the Evergreen State means it's dark by 5 p.m. When the bridge had first started showing signs of collapsing, pedestrians that were near the ends of the bridge managed to scramble to safety, but the ones that were on the middle part of the span had to save themselves when the bridge went down by crawling across wreckage to the shore or by hanging on for dear life onto floating debris until they could be rescued. The steamers Pomona and Cowlitz were working in the area and immediately jumped into rescue mode. They are credited with saving at least 40 lives during their efforts that day. The rescue work was hampered by the continuing heavy rain and the darkness on that cold early January night, but the wreckage was immediately secured to the new bridge and also along the shoreline in an attempt to make it easier to perform a more thorough search for trapped bodies. But by 6 p.m., none had been found. There were, however, several reports that people had spotted bodies floating down the cowlitz towards the Columbia. Rescue efforts continued throughout the night in search for survivors, but it was clear the search was now turning towards the recovery of bodies. The grim recovery efforts continued well into the morning of the 4th of January, 1923, and that morning the Cowlitz County Coroner's Office brought in three divers to search the bottom of the river around where the bridge collapsed, and they also searched around the wreckage that was still in the water tied up to the new bridge. To catch any bodies that might float down the cowlitz towards the Columbia, thick wires were stretched across the mouth of the cowlitz, but by 10 a.m. that morning, no bodies had been recovered. Many of the workers continued to doubt that they would find any more bodies, but they continued to search as a Pacific Bridge Company barge crane began the task of hauling out destroyed vehicles and timbers. Crews dragged the bottom of the cowlitz from the wreckage site down to the mouth, but they had nothing to show for their troubles by that night. Hampering these recovery efforts was the constant rain that continued to fall, causing the cowlitz to continue to rise towards flood stage, and the fast-moving, muddy waters of the cowlitz held great dangers to the divers, for there were numerous logs and large bits of debris that raced down the river, and soon the search for victims was suspended entirely. Instead, efforts were concentrated in exploring eddies, flooded areas of Kelso, and riverbanks for any victims that could have possibly washed up on shore. 
The 10th of January saw freezing weather returning to the Evergreen State, and the rain that had been falling almost nonstop since the bridge collapsed had now turned to snow up in the higher elevations, and though the rain continued to fall across Cowlitz County, the levels of its rivers began to drop quite rapidly, and the Cowlitz River fell well below flood stage. The amount of rainfall that the Portland Weather Station recorded from the first 10 days of 1923 was reportedly over 9 inches. Portland is about 45 miles south of Kelso and the closest weather station, but I lived in Longview for several years growing up, and the weather report for Portland tended to not differ all that much from Longview, and I'd imagine it wasn't much different then either. By Saturday, the 13th of January, 10 days later, the waters of the Cowlitz had dropped to a low enough level to allow for the resumption of the recovery efforts. Barge cranes were brought in once again from the Pacific Bridge Company, as well as a few from the Silver Lake Railway and Lumber Company. As these barges went to work clearing wreckage and crushed vehicles from the river, divers also went to work searching along the entire bottom of the river for bodies, but they described the riverbed as being as smooth as a beach since the storms brought in huge amounts of settlement that settled on the bottom, covering up anything that had been down there. A large fleet of steamers combed downriver, and charges of dynamite were even used at 200-foot intervals in a three-mile stretch of the Cowlitz from Kelso and its confluence with the mighty Columbia in an attempt to loosen any bodies that were stuck in the thick mud. But by the 17th of January, two weeks after the collapse of the bridge, William D. Van Note, the Cowlitz County coroner, determined that continuing the search for victims would be fruitless and would not be the best use of limited county resources. Of the 13 automobiles belonging to known victims of the disaster, only six were ever found, but Van Note knew that there were numerous more bodies trapped down there in the river, but they couldn't get to them. Despite the divers scouring the entire riverbed from the site of the collapse to the confluence with the Columbia, only two vehicles and a wagon were found in the entire efforts, but no bodies were found amongst them. Eyewitnesses spoke of seeing anywhere between 100 and 150 people with as many as two dozen vehicles crossing the bridge when that fateful cable snapped. Amazingly, nobody on the east draw span or approach was killed. All loss of life came from the collapse of the middle span, but fortunately, most of the pedestrians were able to scamper off the bridge just in time, though 14 people would be rushed to the Kelso Hospital with serious injuries. Two died once they got to the hospital, an employee of the Long Bell Lumber Company named Harold Kirk, age 35, and a plumber up from Vancouver named George R. MacDonald, age 36. After diligently checking with nearly every rooming house, hotel, and homes where folks rented out rooms, Coroner Van Note concluded that there were 35 to 40 people that were missing. Included among this number were about a dozen vagrants seen hanging out around the Long Bell Employment Office looking for work, but around the time of the collapse they were headed over to East Kelso. The numbers of known victims continued to fluctuate over the weeks following the accident, as previously reported missing persons turned up alive and well, a bit flabbergasted that they were thought to be dead. The official tally was two dead, Kirk and McDonald, and 18 people were missing and presumed to be dead. Among these was a Cowlitz County Commissioner-elect who had just been voted in the previous month and his driver, Arlie Millard, W.V. Buck of Illinois, Maria Florence Huntington, her husband Alonzo Huntington, and their young son Lloyd G. Huntington, showing just how itinerant the workforce was that Long Bell relied on to build the new city of Longview. Other victims that were lost and presumed dead were Ralph Chamberlain of Alberta, Alan Chisholm of Saskatchewan, John Cooper of Louisiana, F.M. Beacon of Seattle, W.P. Croak and Robert Titland of Tacoma, and W.F. Philo of Portland. 
Four of the presumed dead were from Kelso, William Hartley, John Godfrey, Emil Johnson, and Earl Pennell. Luther J. Hall of Longview was also among the missing. It wasn't until six months later, on the 13th of July, that the first body would be discovered. Badly decomposed on a jetty two miles south of Kelso, Arlie Millard had been driving Commissioner-elect Benjamin Barr, though Benjamin was never found. Over the remainder of 1923, several additional bodies were recovered, including Maria Huntington and Luther Hall in August, then in November, Lloyd Huntington was found, and then, nearly a year later, in October of 1924, W.V. Buck was the final victim recovered and properly laid to rest. Given that many workers around the area were transient laborers either trying to find employment or actively employed, the exact death toll for the deadliest bridge collapse in the Evergreen State will never be accurately known. Claims for death or injury that day resulting from the collapse of the bridge were filed against both Cowlitz County and the city of Kelso for over $500,000. Experts differed as to the direct cause of the collapse, but a structural engineer from Astoria, A.J. Haley, said that the old bridge should have been declared unsafe and closed. You see, on the 22nd of December 1922, just under two weeks before the disaster, a huge log boom that was owned by the Silver Lake Railway and Lumber Company broke loose, which caused a log jam to occur at the bridge after the over 3 million board feet of lumber broke loose and rushed down the cowlitz. This caused massive amounts of pressure to be exerted on the piers of the towers that supported the bridge. Haley stated quite publicly on Christmas of 1922 that a toothpick might topple it over. This log jam would be cleared on the 2nd of January, the day before the old bridge collapsed. The engineer that was in charge of building the new bridge, J.F. Hamilton, claimed that he had inspected the suspension cables just a few days before and he had found them to be in good condition so he couldn't make sense of why the bridge would have failed so spectacularly. The bridge by this time was quite old for an entirely wooden one and was not built to handle the volume or weight of traffic that it was carrying that evening when the traffic jam occurred. An official coroner's inquest was never held into the event, but one can reasonably assume that the cause of this collapse was a combination of circumstances and negligence. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Leaving that 5-star review really helps the show to grow and to reach a new audience, so anything you can do to help would be greatly appreciated. Sources for this episode include the Cowlitz County Historical Society and Museum, About Cowlitz County, Washington by Camilla Sanders, 1982, HistoryLink.org, The Kelsonian, The Seattle P.I., BridgeHunter.com, MyNorthwest.com, Historic Highway Bridges of the Evergreen State by Craig Holstein and Richard Hobbs, The Albany Daily Democrat, The Evening Herald, and The Daily News. Thank you for listening to Episode 63, The Deadliest Bridge Collapse in the Evergreen State. Episode 64 will be released next week. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. And another thanks goes out to you all for putting up with my rough voice this week. Once again, I'm sorry, but go Mariners. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hoe. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. 
There's Jimicum and Stilicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing Stilaguamish and the swirling Skookum Chuck. And Moclips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound.